Let's pray. Lord, this morning, first, we want to lift up Paul Gould and uh, Wesley, Wesley Methodist Church. Lord, we want to pray for the, first of all, I want to pray for Paul and his wife and their marriage, that it would be rich and blessed, that his primary ministry is to his wife and family. Lord, I pray that the gospel is on display in the Gould micro-earth and uh, that Christ is savored and enjoyed in their marriage and uh, that Paul is on a journey of faith that is obvious to his wife and family first and that that real journey gushes over and spills over onto a people. Lord, I pray that Paul has men that are accountable or that he is accountable to, men that are peers that can... Uh, look him in the eyes and hold him accountable in what he says and, this, and the decisions that he makes. Pray that you'll guard that people from making decisions that will um, take them away from a Christ-centered gospel. But just pray that they will enjoy just the simplicity, the beauty, the wonder of Christ crucified and risen. Pray that that's what will fuel them. Lord, we pray that we will be true partners with them and never be in competition with them. Pray that they won't have room to sit, the people that you are drawing to Christ and uh, to that fellowship. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for this people and for myself, Lord. I pray um, for myself that I'll be out of the way. I pray that you'll guard my heart from secretly um, wanting applause or approval. That you'll purge that wicked temptation from me this morning and that I'll be spent and poured out and uh, diminished and decrease and pray that your message will be increased and your gospel will be on display and pray that your people will engage what it means to truly believe this morning i pray for people that might be uh, beginning faith this morning that they will be riveted gripped um, quickened with the truth i pray that those who maybe think they're believing but are simply acknowledging that they will be captivated with a gospel that's, um, that's bigger than that and with a picture that church is more than a place to go and a thing to do, but it's a true people. Lord, I pray that those who are on the journey of believing will be affirmed and encouraged and that we'll still see yet how much work there is to do and how much believing there's yet to do and how many degrees of glory are yet in store through one trouble after another. Lord, I pray for a attentiveness that's beyond the capability of any of us, but that is spirit-led and spirit-fueled. We turn this time over to you for your glory and for your enjoyment. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. <coughs> turn to the book of John, please. John chapter 14. <coughs> talked to Scott beforehand, and one of the things that I'm burdened about this morning is uh, that in the simplicity of what we're about to engage, that, that you could lose the impact of it just because it may be simple. Uh, this morning is weighty, not because it's complicated, but because it's so critical. We're going to engage some truths this morning that will be kind of part two from last week. Things that are so simple yet so difficult to do. That we need each other in the doing. We need to be um, encouraged, reminded, stirred up in what true belief really is. John chapter 14 verse 1 says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The word trouble last week, I introduced you to this. The word trouble means agitated. It means an inward commotion. It means disturbed, disquieted, made restless, and stirred up. Another place that it's used is in John chapter 4, where a man lay lame by the pool of Bethesda. 38 years he was brought there day by day, and he waited for the water to be stirred that he might plop over in the water and be healed. That's what they believed, is the angels would stir the water periodically. And that picture of the stirred water is the picture. It's the same word that's used right here for the troubled heart. So the stirred pool is a great image of that. Last week we considered the picture, the 
context of these guys, of where they're hearing these words, let not your hearts be troubled. These guys were in a pretty dramatic moment. They'd left everything. They left their work trucks. Those of you who are in, in construction, I know how important your truck is to you. Your rig with all your equipment. They left their boats, which is their version of your work truck. They left their tax collecting booths, which might be kind of a picture of your cubicles. Not accusing that you're tax collectors necessarily, but maybe you have a cubicle, a little space that you work in. They walked away from that to follow this initially a nobody. Before he had a following, now we know that he's always been somebody. There was never a time when he was not, but in their eyes, for all they know, he's a nobody. And they left everything, boats, cubicles, work trucks, to follow this Jesus. They cast their lot with him, and as his popularity grew, do you think for a moment that they didn't get caught up in that? Man, they just imagine these guys. They're fishermen and tax collectors. I bet they had a series of bad decisions. I think we all have had a series of bad decisions. We can relate to it. Bad investments in time, in effort, maybe even in money. You can imagine how these guys are thinking, man, we finally hit it big. <laughs> I had to resort to fishing or I had to resort to tax collecting because of these series of bad decisions. But now this one, this Jesus that we followed, man, this was a good, sound decision. And don't think for a moment they weren't caught up in it. We know even from the scripture that there were some dialogue and some things that took place that suggest that they were caught up in it. The Matthew version of this account tells us that they were sitting around the table at the Lord's Supper having an argument about who would be greatest in his court. These guys that walked with Jesus for three years are sitting around arguing about who's going to be the greatest. <laughs> Another account tells us where the mommy of James and John, the wife of Zebedee, comes to Jesus and says, Hey, uh, can John sit on your right, or one of them sit on your right, and the other sit on the left? And the boys weren't objecting. They're saying, Go, Mommy. Please secure us a space on the right or the left. These guys were taken with it. I bet they picked out their robes already. One called, I got denim. Maybe that's Peter. I'm going to wear Wrangler denim. One of them said, I, I want velvet. <laughs> They picked out their robes. They had their spot chosen in the court. They watched Jerusalem cheer for him just days earlier. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This had been a very wise investment for them. Yet here he is preparing them for bad news. He shares just in the verses before, just the few verses before we read here in 14 verse 1, he shared with them the bad news of Judas's betrayal. I want you to imagine Judas being the most trusted, likely. He's the guy that kept the money. We always paint him as this like Sam Cobra lookalike, like he's wearing black and scowling all the time. He's keeping the books. If you're part of a group of people and you're going to give that responsibility to him, you're going to give him likely to the most trusted. And yet he's the guy that's going to betray Jesus. That's bad news for the gang. And then they get the bad news that Wrangler Denim wearing Peter is going to betray his Jesus. Peter? Man, that is bad news. And then they also get the bad news that he shares with them that they will not be able to follow him where he's going. They've been following him 24 and 7 for three years. That's bad news. We're supposed to get our, our robes this week. And you're saying we can't follow you where you're going? This is a terrible time in the life of these guys. We can climb into the context and imagine that their hearts were very troubled. We've got our own versions of troubled hearts. I spent a lot more time on this last week than I am this morning. But just imagine, just a few of them for a moment so we can climb back into the context. A marriage, a sweet marriage that looks like, or a sweet courtship that looks like it's going to be a wonderful Eden-like marriage. Where it turns out it's not Eden. This dude's not the man I thought he was going to be. This woman's not the woman that I thought she was going to be. Or maybe you land that new job that you've been vying for. And you think, man, things are going to be great when I get that job. And then you get that job and you find out, mm, it's not all that. My heart's troubled. Maybe you move to a new town. It's, man, this town's going to be all that. And then you come to find out, no, it's not all that. Maybe you have a business that you've begun, that you put your, your heart into. that looks like it's going to flourish. 
but then it doesn't, and the heartache that goes along with that. Or maybe there's a relationship with teens. Some of you, I bet, can relate to that. I don't have teens yet, but I was a teen. And I know how stupid my parents were when I was a teenager. They got really smart later. But I can only imagine the heartache from the parents' point of view. And I've seen it in some of you. The heartache that you're dealing with, the troubled hearts. Or how about the loss of a loved one too early? You're looking at it saying, man, this was just too soon. Or maybe there's a criminal act. Maybe some of you have been on the receiving end of something that was just horrific. Something was taken from you or you were hurt in some way. And you're having to deal with that sort of troubled heart. Or maybe it's just a pure injustice. That happens all the time. People drug into court over insignificant stuff, petty stuff. And maybe you're on the receiving end of a grave injustice and you're dealing with a troubled heart. Well, this command that he gave these guys with their troubled hearts is the same command that he gives you with your troubled heart. Anything that's ever troubled you, climb into this and let this educate you. Jesus commands them with an imperative. I told you last week it was an infinitive. That was a mis, I misspoke. I sent you an email as a follow-up. It's an imperative. An imperative is a Greek command. It's lost in the verbiage here because it says, let not your hearts be troubled. It sounds like a suggestion, doesn't it? Let not your hearts be troubled. You could write a song. It's so sweet. Imagine the intensity of this moment and take in the Greek imperative and realize that it's like a command. Thou shalt not have a troubled heart. From the one who spoke and the one went into action and put creation into place. The one in whom all things are held together is the one that says, Thou shalt not have a troubled heart. Last week we considered that there's three other occasions where this Jesus, this commander in this moment, had the troubled heart that he's commanding them not to have. So what we did last week is we synthesized those and realized what he's saying is not, Thou shalt never have a troubled heart. What he's saying is don't live with a troubled heart. He models for them in all three occasions what to do when you have a troubled heart. The first occasion is in the death of Lazarus. He comes to the tomb. He sees Mary, Mary and Martha weeping. And it says his heart was deeply troubled. And what does he do in the next few moments? He prays. And he turns Godward. The next one is in the next chapter, chapter 12, where the, Andrew and Philip bring the Greeks to him. And he realizes, now's my hour. I'm standing in my final days before I'm nailed to a cross. And it says his heart was deeply troubled. And what did he do in that moment? He prayed. The third occasion is where he shared the bad news of the betrayal of Judas. We know from another account in another gospel that it was moments later that he bowed his head and he blessed the Lord's Supper in prayer. In all three accounts, he turned Godward. So what he's saying is, not thou shalt never, never have a troubled heart. What he's saying is, thou shalt not keep a troubled heart. Do what I do. Turn Godward. Do what I do and what I've modeled for you by turning fatherward. And you turn Godward. He models what Paul says, a very familiar passage to us. It says, don't be anxious in anything. That's also a command, an imperative. Don't be anxious anything it's not a suggestion it's a command don't be anxious in anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to god what paul is saying there is the same thing we've seen in christ he turns godward in every case and he gives them solutions to their a solution to their troubled heart the only cure the only true solution for the troubled heart is to believe Godward. Last week we considered three ways that we don't believe Godward. Three things that are not Godward belief. What we did is I gave you this picture, kind of an image of this shape of belief. And what we did last week is we shaded the outside. Three things that are not Godward belief. Believing in yourself is not Godward belief. Proverbs 28, 26, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. 
That passage means a lot to me because I've mastered that. My parents used to call me last word Ben. Because we have a conversation or an argument, I'm going to get the last word. Because I'm right. Even as a little boy, I'm right. And I modeled this in the Marine Corps too. I was a hard-headed know-it-all. The terminal critic that had all the answers. And I'll tell you what, my evals reflected it. I had all the answers and thought I had it all figured out. But, but I was just a fool trusting in myself and trusting in my own mind. And that's not believing Godward. The second thing we looked at last week that's not believing Godward is believing in stuff. We looked at a passage in Isaiah, this incredible picture where the one who trusts in stuff is really made out to be a big chump. The guy, the carpenter that plants a tree out in the woods and says, I'm going to do something special with you someday. He lets it grow up and then he cuts it. And with half of it, he makes kindling to cook his food. <laughs> kindling to, to uh, warm himself. And with the other half, he makes an idol and worships it. What a goober. The guy models exactly what we do when we have a troubled heart and we look to stuff. To things, to a shopping spree to medicate our troubled heart. To the kitchen cupboard to pacify our troubled heart. Or to the catalogs to numb a troubled heart. We're as ridiculous as the guy that makes a little idol out of the wood that just ought to be used to warm. It's just kindling. It's just stuff. So believing in stuff is not believing Godward. Stuff is just a band-aid on the troubled heart. It makes a terrible God. The third thing we considered last week is that believing Godward is not believing in means. Some things that we talked about last week, I'm not going to go there. It's probably the most complicated thing that I engaged last week. Medicine, counseling, friends, government, family, these are all great things, but they're just tools in God's hands. Don't put your faith in the tools. Use them, but don't believe in them. Believe in the God of them. Today, we're going to fill in the rest of the picture. We've shaded the outside. Today, we're going to fill in the inside of the picture. Four things I want to introduce to you that will help color in that picture. Four rich, simple truths all come directly from that one verse. John chapter 14, verse 1. Before we go there, I want to kind of introduce you to, to a thought. In the next few minutes, I'm going to be using faith, belief, and trust interchangeably. And I'm using them interchangeably is because something that we can't appreciate in the original language, they come from the same Greek word. Pistis, or pistuo. It's the same Greek word used in different ways. In one case, in faith, it's usually a noun. It would be like saying, my father is good, father is a noun. In other cases, when it says belief, it's usually a verb. It would be like, that dude needs to do some fathering. Father becomes a verb in that case. So while I'm not using the same word like father, it's not so obvious. I'm using different words, but they mean the same thing. They come from the same original Greek word. Faith, belief, and trust. The first thing to help us shade in the inside of this picture is that believing comes from trouble. I was just bathing in that one verse and just gnawing on it for weeks. Really, I had months to look ahead, and I was just thinking, man, it's so interesting that right there in that one verse, it says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe is the very next word. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And I started, in my Bible, you can do this. You don't have to. But in my Bible, I circled trouble, and I drew an arrow to believe because it's all over the rest of our Bible, the reason I can do that. I started connecting the dots and going, wait a second, trouble and belief go together. And in fact, trouble is the doorway into belief. Turn to Matthew chapter 9. Keep your finger in John 14, just so you can go back and look at it frequently over the morning. Matthew chapter 9, I so want you to see this. <clears throat> Consider in this one chapter in the book of Matthew. Consider what we're going to see. 
Matthew chapter 9, here's the first thing, starting in verse 2. It's on page 813 of your pew Bible. It says, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Okay, I didn't add paralysis to our list of troubled heart things, because I don't know that any of you are paralyzed. Maybe you might be. But I'm going to tell you right now, I think I would qualify that as a troubled heart. They bring to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Look at the next page. Or maybe on the same page in your Bible. Page 814. Look at verse 18. A ruler came to him and knelt before him saying, My daughter has just died. That's a troubled heart right there. This ruler lost his daughter. But come lay your hand on her and she will live. He's going to come back to her. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, here's the next person. A woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. I'm going to say that's trouble. Bleeding for 12 years. I qualify that as a troubled heart. She came and touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith. Hear it? That noun version of that word has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. In verse 23, let's come back to the ruler's daughter. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead but sleeping. They laugh, ha ha. And then in the next verse, 25, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. Three characters we've looked at already. Here's the next one, verse 27. And Jesus passed on from there or as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him crying aloud. I'm going to tell you right now, firsthand, Christy and I can testify that blindness makes for a troubled heart. There's a daily reminder of the trouble associated with that when your son is getting hit in the face with a Buzz Lightyear or a lightsaber in the eyeball because he doesn't have that last-minute flinch response because his eyes aren't that good. Or stepping off steps all day long, all day long because he has no depth perception. That's a troubled heart. I'll tell you firsthand. Jesus passed on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. We're tired of getting hit in the face with Buzz Lightyears. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to him, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? You hear that? Believe? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you, and their eyes were opened. And here's the last dude, just in one chapter. Verse 32, And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. There's another troubled heart healed. The reason I went through that one chapter is because that one chapter is like a parade A triage parade. I mean, that makes ER on Thursday nights look like a joke. You got a demon-possessed man. You got blind people. You got a lady who's been bleeding for 12 years. You got a dead daughter. You got a paralytic. And here you're seeing, in one chapter, in every case you're seeing trouble, goes with healing and belief. They go together. Just think in the book of John so far. Turn back to John 14. Just keep your eyes on that John 14. And as you're turning there, just let me acquaint you with some of the things that we've engaged the last few chapters. There's a man that's lame for 38 years. And he's healed. There are 5,000 people that are hungry. Troubled heart. Hungry. And God provides, or Christ provides food. There's a woman caught in adultery with a crowd of people standing around her with rocks. I'm going to say that's a troubled heart. There's a man that's blind from birth in John chapter 9. There's a dead man called Lazarus in John John chapter 11. And in every case when we see it in the book of John, every time you see trouble, there's belief. They go together. They're appropriate in the same verse because they go together. All of these things, this triage parade, 
shows us that trouble is the doorway to faith. Slash belief. Slash trust. The very thing that we're begging God, God, please keep us from those things, are the very things that escort us into a deeper faith. So his command, thou shalt not let your hearts be troubled, means the command is don't stay in the doorway, but let that perfect storm of problems be the entrance into a deeper, richer belief. You get better and better at turning Godward through these dark nights of trouble. Let that doorway be an entrance into a richer, more vibrant faith. I'll share a couple passages with you. If you're fast, you can turn there with me. If not, just listen. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Here, troubled hearts. You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Testing and faith go together because faith comes via a troubled heart. A couple of pages in front of that, James chapter 1, Brad preached on this a few weeks ago, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, insert troubled hearts. Count it all joy, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Testing and faith go together. It's appropriate that they're in the same verse. Tested faith produces robust, full, complete faith. I don't think you can get it any other way. share a passage with you you can jot this down but i'm already there it's psalm 119 verse 71 these words from david he says it is good for me that i was afflicted here trouble that i might learn your statutes (laughs) it was good for me that's a dude right there that can count it all joy because he knows what these things are doing he knows what these troubles are doing they're making for a richer more vibrant faith That's why our trouble doesn't end when we follow Christ. Because we need to believe today and we need yesterday's trouble to escort us into that belief. And we need to move from one degree of glory and understanding and faith to the next as we see the glory of His face through one door of trouble after the next. These troubles serve as a sweet, sanctifying purpose. And in some otherworldly way, we thank Him for them. Second thing that's true of belief, go back to John chapter 14. Actually, go to James chapter 2. I'll give you some time to turn there while I develop this. James chapter 2. The second thing that's true of belief, the first thing that I just shared is that it comes via the doorway of trouble. The second thing is that it's a verb and it's present tense. Remember I said my fear for this morning is that this morning could be so simple that you're like, oh man, this is nothing new. What else you got? And I'm saying if you're thinking that and you're saying that, then you're not believing. If you're about the difficult work of believing, then this is a good reminder for you. And you're going, thank you for this reminder. Belief is a verb and it's present tense. Just to remind you of what a verb is, we're reading... um, Daniel's at the age where he's starting to read and we're kind of working through those books. See Dick Run, see Spot Run, see Jane Chase Dick, or I don't remember how the stories go. But in those occasions, we're able to equate Daniel with the verb and the subject and also the how to read the word. But I want to acquaint you in a kind of a ridiculous, simple way with the verb. I want you to appreciate it. See Dick run, run is the verb. See Spot run, run is the verb. See Jane believe, believe is a verb. Heart curing belief is a verb. It's not a past tense thing either. It is a present tense thing. He didn't say, let not your hearts be troubled, dudes. Remember how you believed in me yesterday? 
Remember how you believed three, year, three years ago when you left your work truck? It says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe. You believe in the Father. You believe in God. Believe also in me. His remedy for heart, troubled heart is a present tense, ongoing, touching, talking, praying, clinging, trusting, faithing, if we can make up another word, belief. It's got a big fat I-N-G on it. James chapter 2, verse 18. This is what James is talking about here. Chapter 2, verse 18, James writes. He says, you have faith and I, or someone will say, you have faith and I have works. He says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. It says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe, listen to here, acknowledge right there. Even the demons acknowledge and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that person that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Here, verb. Here, I-N-G. You see that faith was, here's the word, active. Belief is active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Here's a key verse. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James says that if your belief slash faith slash trust is real, it will be evident and active, is what he said. It will be evident because activity is to true belief as wool is to a sheep, and to use his imagery right there, as the soul is to the living. This might be what I think is the fear that we misunderstand so often is the difference between acknowledgement and belief. That's what the James is speaking to there in verse 19, where he says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Here, believe there is acknowledge. You acknowledge that God is one, you do well. Even the demons acknowledge that and shudder. I use this illustration, the difference between acknowledgement and belief, until I get a better illustration. This is the one I'm going to stick with. I went to Army Jump School in uh, 1987. It was between my sophomore and junior year of college. And uh, at jump school, before I went, I kind of prepared myself a little bit, you know, physically trying to get in shape, you know, but I also watched the movies, Green Berets, you know. These guys are jumping out of the planes, like, like looks like uh, seeds, you know, being thrown at a wedding or something. They're just pouring out of these planes, and these parachutes popping up everywhere, and these guys are Green Berets, are floating down to the ground. And I watched those movies, man, and, and I acknowledge that a parachute works because I saw it on TV. But then I went off to our U.S. Army Jump School, and then I had five reminders that I had to step out under that plane, under that canopy, where I went from acknowledging that a parachute works to putting my life in that belief, where I'm looking up with knees in the breeze. I went from believing that it existed and that it worked to actually placing myself in that belief. There's a difference between acknowledgement or belief and believing in. And true faith believes in. True faith has knees in the breeze and takes risks and does scary things like giving money that you can't afford. I think that's what sacrifice is. Like doing things that are beyond you. I think that's what preaching is for me. Doing things that you're not capable of, that are so far beyond you, where you're just living with knees in the breeze. That's filling in the picture of belief. Belief is a verb. Belief is not past tense, it is present tense today. This has so become a reality at Crosspoint that when the elders meet with families, which you're coming eventually if you're a member, when the elders meet with families and ask how you're doing, or when we meet with potential members, or we meet with somebody that's trying to sort some things out in counseling, my question now and the question of the elders is, how's your believing? 
It's not let me hear your testimony, although that might be part of it. Let me hear how you began the journey. Yes, we want to understand that, but I want to understand where are you on the journey now? Because true faith is a verb. And it has a big fat I-N-G on the end of it. The third thing that we can see from John chapter 14, don't turn there, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. This is the third thing, is that belief is plural. John chapter 14 is simple enough to where you can remember it. I've memorized it by now. We've gone over it so many times. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. That phrase there, you believe in God, believe also in me, that phrase there is plural. Now you might say, well, of course it is. He's sitting with more than one guy. I want you to see biblically that that is more than just a circumstance of him sitting with more than one person. I want you to see that belief is plural. Multiple belief is all over our Bible. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus, page 978 of your pew Bible. And Paul says, Now this I say, and I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's, He's writing to a church. Just imagine this letter's coming to us. And that we were formerly Gentiles, unbelieving Gentiles. Maybe we're believing Gentiles now. Let's be appropriate. We can climb into this. That you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed to pra- greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you guys learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self. I want to acquaint you with the original language there. What this points to, what's described there is, it would be like a paraphrase. This is the Ben International Version. It would be, you guys put off your old self. Now, I've heard this passage preached a thousand times poorly. Where it's so individualistic. And you're, envision, you're envisioning yourself sitting there saying, yeah, I want to put off the old bin and put on the new bin. Yes, I like that. Because I like talking. Somebody talking to me as an individual. I want you to appreciate that this is a plural. You guys, you individuals, put off your old self. is singular. It doesn't say, you guys put off your old selves. You understand the difference there? You guys put off your old Ben's and Bob's and Tom's and Sally's. What he's saying there is you guys put off your old humanity. Your old Gentile people humanity. Put off that old humanity. And then he goes on to say, put on your new. Listen, he says, put off your old humanity, you guys, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new humanity put on the new mankind created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness I want you guys to appreciate from this passage that this is not an individualistic message it's a message to a bunch of individuals that are made up of a people who have put off an old humanity and have put on a new identity because we're believing as a people Treating this like an individual, like putting off your old bin and putting on a new bin, does this a grave injustice to the plurality of belief. He says, you guys believe in God. Y'all, let's make it Greenville. Y'all believe in me. Man, it's plural. You people put off your old self and put on the new Self, put off the old humanity, put on the new humanity. Belief is a corporate thing and it's done as a people. Something else that's really cool from this passage, John 14, verse 1. You know, it says, let not your hearts be troubled. Actually, in the original language, it's heart. Let not your heart be troubled. He's talking to a plurality who have one heart. And in this case, that one heart is troubled. And what he's taking that one heart to is that that one heart believes in corporate. That one heart believes together. In the original language, it's let not your heart 
be troubled. There is a singular heart among the people of God. The y'all belief is condensed into a singular heart of belief. There are no renegades or mavericks in the church. You believe together as one heart. One of the things that I'm going to do when we're in John 14, after we finish John 14, is I'm going to preach a sermon or a series of sermons on the Trinity. Because I don't know that there's a chapter that in one chapter captures the Trinity so beautifully. Now, I know when I say Trinity that many of you would be like me a few months ago and say, okay, well, that's a, a concept that I believe in. I was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Likely somebody, if they led me through my vows... They said, I commit myself to you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So yeah, I believe in a trinity, but it's pretty irrelevant, right? It's actually the most relevant thing that we can embrace as the people of God. See, our God is not a monad. A monad would be the Muslim God that's just by himself. He has no plurality in and of himself. He has no community in and of himself. He's dependent on creation to actually be faithful. He's dependent on creation to actually be loving because he has nobody to be faithful and loving to. The reality is that our triune God has been faithful and loving forever because he's been loving and faithful to himself in plurality. He's the picture of community. He in himself is the picture of this plural but singular heart. This plural belief, but singular heart. Listen to this. The Father, Son, and Spirit are intertwined, ministering to each other. These may be the most important words that have ever been spoken in this sanctuary. So if you're thinking about lunch, I beg you to engage what I'm telling you right now. Father, Son, and Spirit are intertwined, ministering to each other. They are basking in the glory of one another. They are considering others as more important than themselves. You heard some of the language of the Gospels? Jesus says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus says, may you be glorified in this hour. They're all about each other's glory. They're considering each other more important than themselves. And yet they're completely content and satisfied with each other. Acts chapter 17 God is not contained in buildings made by human hands, nor is he served by any human as if he needed anything. God doesn't need us, unlike the God of Allah, or the God of Muslim Allah. He needs us in order to be faithful and loving. Our God does not need us. He's completely satisfied and content in and of himself. He's already got community. What he's doing in the gospel, he's leaning outward and downward with a gospel and a story about himself. Not because he needs it. Because he's graceful and merciful. Those things I just described perfectly describe the people of God. They were basking in the glory of each other. They were considering others as more important than ourselves. They were completely content and satisfied in and of ourselves, but yet we're not staying in and of ourselves, but we're leading outward and loving outward with a story instead of about us, about him. He models community for us. Belief is plural. It's stereophonic belief with one clarion note. Stereophonic belief. I'm saying it twice just because I love that. Stereophonic belief with one clarion note, one heart. It's plural enjoyment from a united people. It's y'all faith. Among a people who once were not. That's what the church is supposed to be. And that's what real belief looks like. The last thing is brief, but it may be the most important. The last thing is that belief, if we're filling in the inside of belief, that belief has a very specific trajectory. In John 14, 1, he says, Believe in God, believe also in me. In the original language, it's a little bit ambiguous, and it could be translated, You believe in God, believe also in me. Or you believe in God, you believe also in me. What it looks like when you take in the rest of the Scripture in the full sweep is that you believe in God. Let me calibrate that belief. Let me refine that belief. 
Let me hone that belief to a razor-sharp belief. Believe also in me. Later he says, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. If we can consider what belief is not, it's not belief in stuff, it's not belief in myself, it's not belief in things, all this outside thing. It's not belief in means. Belief is very specific. It's like a sniper shot. It's like a laser shot in the person of Jesus Christ. And as we believe in him, we believe through him to the Father. And all of that is by the Spirit. Godward belief is surgical. What I want you to appreciate is that sincerity does not save. There are some people that are very sincere that are very wrong. I'm just going to say you're sincere when you can take a belt of explosives and wrap that around you and step into a public place and ignite yourself. I'm going to say you're pretty sincere, but I'm going to break it to you. You're pretty wrong. I was thinking about my grandmother. She's gone on, I hope and believe, to be with the Lord. She used to drive a big blue Pontiac. Had an eight-track in it. Thing was big, man. The doors, when you slammed, were just like, she would drive me off to England Air Force Base, and she'd go shopping when I was a little kid, and it scared me to death when she'd drive. And when she drove, I, I don't know that she ever did this, but I've always envisioned, I've connected this reality that sincerity does not save with envisioning my grandmother driving around downtown where they have all those one-way streets. And I bet you've seen this before, somebody barreling down a one-way street the wrong way. But, man, they're confident. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm going where I'm going. <laughs> but could they be any more wrong? Man, sincerity does not save. True belief is very surgical and very precise. It's a sniper shot in the direction of God. I hope that between last week and this week that you can do this, that you can examine your belief. That you can consider what you're believing on and believing in. That you can examine whether you might be believing and trusting in something that's not God. urge you to consider your trials and actually count them as joys and be thankful in them because they're doorways to deeper, richer faith. Encourage you to look for your ING and your belief. If you don't see an IG, then start INGing. Start believing. Reading your Bible, sitting with the people of God talking about what you're hearing right now. Tomorrow when you get up and you talk about it as a family, that's an ING. When you meet with a friend over lunch and say, hey man, let me tell you about this sermon I heard yesterday. Or meet with a friend who heard it and say, what do you think about that sermon I heard yesterday? We heard. That's an ING. If you've got no use for what you heard today, I'd wonder if you have any ING. That's what ING is. It's feasting and gnawing and chewing and regurgitating and whatever... uh, what do, uh, what do cattle do? Ruminating. ruminating. That's where we, we, I was going regurgitating. It's not just regurgitating. It's, chew, it's, chew, it's swallowing it again. That's where rumination is. Burping it up and chewing it again. <laughs> Consider your community, too, if there is no community. Man, if you're an island, if you're Rambo believer, if you're Clint, Clint Eastwood the Christian, there is no such thing. Belief is plural. It's multiple hearts gathered into one, condensed into one. You have to know and you have to seek to be known. We need each other. I need you. And you need me. And you need the person sitting to the right and to the left of you in the front and the back. Lastly, is your belief laser pointed at the person of Christ? And the finished work of Christ. Is there anything in you that thinks. That by your own doing. That you can save yourself. It should be pointed at Christ. And Christ alone. Is your faith fixed on the author and perfecter. Of your faith. If it isn't fixed. It should be. Next week. I'm going to introduce you to. won't be an introduction. Many of you will know him already. But a character study. Somebody who modeled that verse. Let not your hearts be troubled. 
You believe in God, believe also in me. We're going to look at him next week. And we'll worship together and join that story. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that we will be characterized by an ING. I pray that our faith will not just be sincere, but it will be surgical. Lord, I pray that our faith and our belief will not be clouded or muddied with any trust in ourselves or even our friends or our means or in stuff. Lord, I pray that we'll be a people that with an otherworldly handling of trouble that will actually look at trouble at the escort that it is. And that we'll actually hug it and embrace it. Not just being a positive people, trying to put a positive spin on a negative thing, but because we recognize that it takes us to a deeper relationship with you. Lord, I pray for those that are examining their faith today, maybe for the first time, and considering that it is no faith at all, but pure acknowledgement. I pray for that Genesis right now, and I pray that it won't be alone. I pray that they will, have, they will call me, or call one of the other elders, or call a teacher, or call a friend, and that they'll work through the issues of faith in plurality. Lord, I pray for those who may be on the journey but have been trusting in themselves and think they've got all of everything figured out and might be last word sort of character that we will cast ourselves at your feet and come in low and recognize that we can't trust in ourselves. Lord, I pray that we'll be characterized as a stereophonic belief with a clarion note of faith. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Let's worship in song.